In this episode, I sit down with someone who describes themselves as the son of one of the last drug smugglers. His name is Joseph Hughes, and he will be releasing a project that I believe is currently titled The Last Smuggler. I actually got a sneak peek at this project. It's a podcast that he would be releasing regarding his story, which we'll be discussing today. So consider this a sneak peek at what could be the last smuggler podcast. Folks, Joseph Hughes' story is fascinating, and I'm so excited to share it with you. One of the things that Joseph and I talked about before we got on air was just how much effort is required to make a podcast. And folks, I'll just keep this very brief by saying, folks, it's while you might be listening to this podcast for free right now, it does cost money to produce uh, this podcast. And there's even things like, you know, software licensing fees and so on and so forth. The point being, it all adds up. And so if you're able to support our show, our, our show is supported by listeners like you. Uh, you can become a patron. It only costs $3 a month to directly support our show. You just go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. One of the best ways to support our show, of course, though, is free. Just simply like this episode, subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Folks, your engagement and support is always appreciated. Please enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. Today is January 18th, 2024. In case I didn't make it clear, I'm your host, Cole Preston. got it by me yeah starting off the podcast with a laugh yeah no i got a few people with that one that was a that was a funny a funny little joke i like i do satire every once in a while you know with as serious as the subject matter can be that that i cover you gotta gotta add some humor and well i gotta say i've been so excited to speak to you uh let me just say the message i received I, i i received the pilot episode of your podcast and the person that that connected us said, listen to this and let me know if you'd like the introduction to the son of the smuggler who produced the above podcast. And I said, enough said, connect me, connect me. Yeah. <laughs> but I listened to the pilot episode, as I told you uh, multiple times and I loved it. And uh, you're, it sounds like you just had such an interesting childhood before we get into that. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself to my audience, please? Yeah. My name is Joseph Hughes, and uh, I'm a professor at Berklee College of Music, a writer and um, a dad. And uh, uh, I myself um, have dabbled in uh, marijuana, but um, since its legalization in Massachusetts, but but um, but I'm more kind of in the uh, um, what what we call the legacy phase of of you know of the trade and and. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to meet you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. And I, I mean, that's actually kind of where I wanted to start. Uh, you talk, like I said, I listened to a little bit of your story and you talk about, as I just started off with growing up as a, as a young boy, 
your father was a drug smuggler. I mean, let's just start there. Let's dive right in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that I should point out, you know, is that my I always put biological before father in the, in the case of my my, um, you know, my smuggler dad. Um, his name was was Mike Woodward. Um, and the reason is because I had a very good dad is, um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, the reason why, so to take a history, just to take a step back a little bit of the prehistory of meeting my old man, because we left Laredo, Texas when I was one. And the story goes that, um, my mother's from Boston and she was, you know, basically a Catholic girl and loved, um, you know, was in the was in the girls' room at Jeanne d'Arc High School in uh, Milton when Kennedy was assassinated, and you know, read The Other America by Michael Harrington in high school, and was very idealistic and wanted to change the world. And so she went to sign up. She instead of going to college, she signed up for Vista, which was Kennedy's Peace Corps, basically the domestic Peace Corps. And she could have gone to Honolulu, but she she um, you know she charmed the 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 um, uh, orientation leaders, but they, she was ultimately sent to Laredo on the border. Um, and, um, she, uh, she met my old man. He was from kind of a faded, uh, family dynasty. His, his uncle was mayor of Laredo, Pepe Martin. Um, this is in 1966. And, um, so, so, you know, so he was from a family of no small means on the border. Um, and, you know, the thing is, he was uh, dyslexic and he was um, a huge, well, he was very, well, first of all, he, when they met, he had a part-time job in the Vista office. And when they met to hear my mother describe, he's very charming, very handsome, very charismatic. And, you know, basically they fell in love. And, and this is in a period where before birth control and all that people basically, not before, but basically people, your first love, you basically married the person they married in Mexico. And, you know, they were too young. They were kids. And Mike, my my old man, was um, at the beginning very stable. Things were sort of steady. And he had a job as an engineer at the uh, television station in Laredo. And then later, his uh, stepfather, who was a big rancher in South Texas, got him a job in Pearsall in the power plant. But somewhere along the way, he started to really experiment with drugs. And I don't mean heavy stuff like heroin. I'm talking about like peyote and he'd go on these walkabouts and, you know, and um, and he got it into his mind that uh, that we should um, uh, go to Taos, New Mexico, which was a hippie promised land. It was on Time magazine. I think it's 68 or 69 is this, you know, Mecca for for hippies to go. Land was very cheap. And so he convinced his sister um, to leave uh, Laredo and they went. Uh, she and her husband, my my mother um, and Mike, uh, packed us all up. We went to uh, Taos, New Mexico, and you know by this point he was um, he'd kind of lost his way a little bit. I mean, he, he, you know, he was um, after that he lost his job at the power plant. He was bartering in Taos and trying to you know make ends meet. But he didn't. My aunt moved into a home in Taos, and he found us. Akiva. Akiva is a, a, like basically a dugout in the ground. And he thought, well, this is good enough. And he moved the family into Akiva. And when, when winter rolled around, I don't know if you've ever been to New Mexico cold, but it's, it, get, it gets cold, you know, and like people ski in New Mexico and in Colorado. And, you know, so when winter rolled around, it got very cold and I almost died of pneumonia. 
And my mother said, this is it. That's it. That enough is enough. And these um, friends of Mike's, they, she called them the four Magi. They just came. It was Christmas time in 1970. And they just arrived on, on by this point, she had moved out of the out of the Kiva after the hospital. And she was at my aunt's house and they arrived at the doorstep and they said, we don't know why we're here, but we're going, we know you're in trouble and we're going to take you back to Austin. Um, and they did. And she, so she basically escaped Mike and Mike followed and he, and he, you know, he cut his hair. He tried to, he said, I, I really am going to get a job and get our, my life together. And, you know, this is in the days before rehab. So, you know, he, long story short, he ends up going into hospital my mother calls her father and says, you know, daddy, I, I, I have to get back to Boston. I have to go home. And, you know, and he bailed her out. He sent money for the for the airplane ticket back. And with us two kids, my sister and myself. And I never saw Mike again until uh, Pat Hughes, who was my mother's second uh, husband and was a very good man. Um, and that's another whole story. He was a, a Catholic lefty and just a great guy all around had been a priest you know incredible story uh but he died he died young he died at age 40 of kind of a young man's heart attack and so my mother you know for a, a, at least a year or two years was grieving she was beside herself with grief and so my grandmother reached out and she sent me down to the border first summer terrific my grandmother was a wealthy lady we lived like i, I lived like a you know, a child on the manor, swam in the pool. She had these apartments. She had an antiques business, a ranch. I mean, it was it was like very luxe kind of lifestyle for a, a boy. And you and, were how uh, old? By this point, I'm 12. Yeah. And, you know, we were struggling financially. We had no money. We had nothing really uh, back in, in Boston. And, and so it was really nice for me that first summer. Um, between the first summer, that's 1981, and the second summer, 1982, my biological father put on a kind of charm offensive, went on a charm offensive, and he said, I want Joseph to stay with me. I want Joseph to, to stay with me the, the next summer. And, you know, and he was basically, he was doing logistics on, uh, for a deal. And for, for him, he thought it would be advantageous to have a boy on the deal with him because it, it kind of like acts as like a little bit of a decoy. I'm on vacation. I'm with my son, I, you know? And so, so he, um, he convinced my grandmother, my grandmother, you know, she's a, another whole story. I, I hope to get in, into her story in, in the series, but you know, she was way ahead of her time. She could have been CEO of a company if she, you know, if she were born today, but you know, and the boys, boys will be boys kind of culture of the border. She was like, okay, I'll let Joseph stay with you. So I did that second summer. And that's the summer that he pulled me into his world. And that first episode of the podcast uh, starts out in Bustamante, which, you know, started out cold like a vacation. I thought, well, this is great. We're going, you know, we're going with, uh, you know, his uh, his stepdaughter and the common law wife and, and all these other kids who, as it turned out, were from uh, his boss, who was the head of the gang, had a very big kind of unwieldy family, um, and it was it was uh, several of his kids and his his uh, his wife, and so we were in Bustamante, and and that's where the the podcast picks up, and it's sort of like okay, this is not a vacation, this is going down with you know with with uh, with Mike and with Moose to get the to get a stash of the drugs, right. 
of the of the marijuana. Uh, remember, marijuana is like a Schedule One drug at this point. Still is, but it's you know it's uh, completely illicit to, to 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 move marijuana in any quantities, and so uh, uh, so we're going to get a sample and to bring it back to a drug dealer in Dallas. You don't meet that individual in the uh, in the first episode. We, I, I tried to kind of leave it on a cliffhanger, uh, and you know we we kind of make it across the border. But my life has changed by this point. I mean, it was like, you know, because it was uh, uh, it was such a scarring event to be used in that way by your father, you know. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, so um, it was tough. And it was and so and I wouldn't see him again until maybe. Um, how many how many years later was that? 1993. So about 10 years later. Uh, when my grandmother turned 70 by this point he's wanted by the by the government by the law and he's living on the lamb in mexico he doesn't even live in the united states and he made a kind of trip into new new mexico to my aunt's cabin um he didn't actually go to the cabin he went but we met at a at a restaurant nearby and i took some pictures there was a mariachi band and you know that was the only other time i saw him alive after that he died. I got news that he he died under under his death is shrouded in 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 mystery, and I'd like to explore that in the podcast. And actually, I've unsealed the indictment, and I'm trying to piece together, you know, the years in Mexico. But in particular, I'd like to kind of bookend the series on on his death in in uh, in Nuevo Laredo um, under very mysterious circumstances. There was a you know there was a uh, robbing alcohol and prescription pills. He had possibly called for the ambulance. The old gang was possibly in town, kind of circling around. It was unclear exactly if there was foul play or or, or, or how he died, if he just checked out. Um, and so so those are things I'd like to explore. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I'd like to go and, and visit the places. I'd actually like to go on a recording trip and talk to the people who are willing to talk. Um, you know, it's sometimes tricky. Uh, yeah, getting back, I, I remembered what I wanted to say about my brother. He so his podcast. A lot of the folks that he interviewed about his dad, they also broke the law quite a bit because they were burning draft cards. It was the 1960s. But some of the people that I would like to interview, Cole, they are former like marijuana smugglers who now are, let's say, stockbrokers, and they 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 don't brag about their time, you know, smuggling marrow smuggling weed. They don't do that. They what they. They want to put it behind them. And, and, you know, in the case of the boss of the gang, his son is uh, and later Mike became his own boss. But but the uh, the guy who at that time was kind of the head of the gang, he you know, he was a very legitimate business person with two lucrative businesses. He set his children up in the in the businesses, and, you know, so uh, that those folks don't necessarily want to talk to me. I have to figure out like. Maybe I fly into town and say, I'm here in the hotel with my co-producer and would love to just buy you coffee and, you know, you know, kind of like that approach. Yeah. 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 What was your, what was your dad's name or your, your biological father's name? Yeah. Well, his birth name was Michael Lyons and like me, he was adopted. So his, his name was Michael Woodward. And actually, there was a little bit of uh, difficulty in tracking down because I I have uh, requested his FBI file under the Freedom of Information Act, 
And my aunt wrote his obituary and she called him Lyons. But his name ask, did he have like a cool gang name? <laughs> um, well, no. Well, he no, he was called there were three mics associated with this gang. Uh-huh. And he was he was uh I don't want to name them necessarily, but they were the three mics. And my old man who was bilingual, they called Miguel. Okay. Yeah. So he was known as Miguel in, in that in that circle, in that world. Gotcha. And I'm curious, you know, I, I can make assumptions, uh, but why was it hard to know? You said it was hard to know your dad used you like that. Why was it hard to? Yeah, like why was why yeah. was that hard to know? What what like it sounds like something's weighing on you to to have come to that realization. Well, it was it was uh, maybe maybe I phrased it inartfully. It's it you know it was it was uh, painful to know that he had no moral compass, that he would use the f- people closest to him to you know to. The other thing to say about my old man is that he was a world-class alcoholic, you know, and that, that does change people's personality. He also likes spirits, you know, he, and so, um, no, he, he was basically morally, uh, just kind of a snake in, in a lot of ways who yeah. would turn on his family. I guess, so that's hard. Right. It's hard to know that's in your family, your family sort of, it 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 make it turns my stomach to know that like because I have a son right and I think well what was he thinking why would you you know what, what why would you endanger your your son that's what I was trying to get at yeah yeah like what you know and actually my whole life as a, as a dad to to my son Elliot I've tried to do the opposite of what what Woodward did you know I, I basically tried to do everything exactly. You know, I would I would ask myself, what would Mike do? And I would do the opposite. Yeah. And I'm just curious, is it it was it the danger aspect of it? Because I look, I'm not going to mince words, obviously crossing the border with drugs and, and bringing it to somebody in the context of maybe doing business is not something a kid should be involved with. So I th- that was the assumption I was going to make in which why you thought it was. I mean, that's dangerous activities, right? Um. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was the danger. It was the, the lack of concern and care. Yeah. Um, Cause you're 12, right? The first summer you're 12, 13, 13, the first summer I was 12. The second summer, I I joke, it was kind of like my bar mitzvah or whatever, but that his idea was that he was, you know, he had a twisted rationale for what he was doing, but um, I would later find out that that was a, it was a pattern of his to to kind of try to pull in family who were vulnerable, either because they were young or because like I, in the case of one cousin of mine, she's mentally a little bit uh, unstable. And he kind of, I believe, and I, and I have to sort of investigate this a little bit more, but what I've heard is that he drew her into the last Harad drug deal that he went on that I described as, yeah. you know, he basically died on that deal. But there was she did not go to his funeral, for example. And I always kind of was left scratching my head a little bit about that. And I, I think it was because she was involved on that deal. And, uh, you know, and I, and so I think that his that w- and, and actually the other interview that I'm trying to get is with his Mexican son, because um, his he had a, a wife in Mexico, a common law wife. 
Um, and I knew I met the son on that that time that I uh, at my grandmother's uh, 70th, that big blowout birthday party in New Mexico. And I took one look at him and I realized he kind of had the same like that, that like uh, that look of a kid who had been brought into something he shouldn't have seen. And I want to connect with him as part of this project. I tried in November. And I, I think when they realize there's not necessarily money on the for for I can't like you know I'm not gonna it's it actually goes to the heart of journalistic ethics you can't send someone 500 bucks and say I want to talk to you it doesn't quite work that way that's why I said I I would like to go on a reporting trip and say I'm in Guadalajara I'd like to sit down and, you know buy you a coffee at the hotel would you the other thing too I've learned this from some journalist friend of mine uh, is when you have the mic on. Like we're talking with a mic right now. Like I see the mic in front of you. People it, it have this uh, very odd reaction where they want to speak. They want to tell their truth. They want to, like they see the red light and it changes their nature almost. So I'm I'm hopeful that I can, uh, you know, get him to talk about what it was like to, to be Mike's, uh, you know, basically that he had another family in Mexico. And I, I believe that he, 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 he drew that kid in as well. Um, and I, I know because his mother told me, um, and, um, at one point we, we were there, uh, related to my grandmother's estate. We were there and kind of talking, my grandmother hit oil. That's a little co- coda to the story. I mean, she was very colorful, but at the end of her life, she kind of like found out that she was, uh, she had hit oil in Catula, Texas. So a lot of people came out of the woodwork. They wanted part of this, you know, um, and, and, uh, yeah. And I spoke to. Uh, to Mike's Mexican wife at that time and and uh, and got the impression that he had pulled her son in as well. So I would like to talk to someone like that. I speak Spanish. You know, I, I could travel down to Guadalajara and, 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 and talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to, I'm not, I'm not meaning to glorify this. I want to get into actually something that you talked about beforehand uh, with regard to maybe some of the, like the truth of the matter, you know, the full truth, I would say. Um, But I did think it was interesting to talk or to hear you describe um, how transactions that that you might be involved with in would just happen out in the open naturally. Um, Just like. You know, somebody get out, you hand them a bag and they're just like, like yeah. almost like you're like, oh, look at this batch of tomatoes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something um, about writing that memoir, because um, that memoir was was really challenging to write because um, I don't remember everything about that summer. I know we had drugs and I know it was near my head in, in a bag. But a lot of what creative I learned by writing this memoir, a lot of recreating those scenes is you put yourself back in the place and you write in the first person and you write in the present tense. And by like you you inhabit it again, you embody it again. And in doing that, it took me 10 years, um, and, but I figure I earned it at that point. And, you know, and I was in therapy and other things. And, and somehow I feel like I got 80% of the story exactly right and then there's 20 percent that i i embellished a little bit you know nothing related to the drugs or you know but there there were elements of it that i was you know you you kind of go in and you say well you know that's create that's what creative nonfiction is it's where you 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 know you you sort of have to and for me it was incredibly therapeutic to do that because it allowed me to to piece together what had happened to me that summer uh, and 
Uh, you know, as it relates to the openness, um, it is true. It is true that at, at the, the the whole way that Mike was able to operate in Mexico was, you know, during the PRI in Mexico. I'm not a historian, but I've I've read up a lot about it. There was a kind of um, the, was they PRI. called it the, the the Partido Revolucionario Internacional. And so, you know, they, they, the pre, they call it the pre. And so they had this kind of uh, winking a, a agreement with, with, um, with the cartels, certain cartels, and they call it the Pax Mafiosi. And so if you knew who to bribe, you, let's say you, Cole, wanted to smuggle marijuana, you could smuggle marijuana. You had to know who to bribe and you had to um, make sure you bribed them, the right people. And, and then, you know, then you could operate relatively out in the open. And, and, and you know, and so in a coffee shop, it might have been owned by the, you know, by, by the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the cartel, as an example, you know. And so a lot a lot of this, you know, the, the, of course, everything was the changed. Cadillac the- close to that. I mean, it sounded like that's. Oh, Cadillac the Cadillac restaurant. bar is something else. The, the Cadillac bar. bar, the the story of the Cadillac is is a little different um, from you know like a rinky dink cafe and you can see how I made the the similarity though. Yeah. Right? yeah, 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 yeah. So the Cadillac was a famous smuggler bar, and actually, just a, it was like a honky tonk kind of. If during Prohibition, this was a guy. He was a New Orleans saloon keeper. His name escapes me. A French surname, an American, who wanted to make money during Prohibition, so he set up. Sh- a lot of people did this, actually. A lot of gangsters, like uh, Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, opened up a nightclub in Nuevo Laredo. But um, so he went to Nuevo Laredo and he opened up this kind of speakeasy sort of operation. And it was understood that he was friendly to the well. He served alcohol because it was Mexico, but he was also friendly to the people who were smuggling. They were called tequileros, the people who were bringing in uh, alcohol illegally. So what they refer to today as the infamous, you know, Nuevo Laredo Plaza, that was, you know, basically christened by uh, the tequileros and the gomeros, the you know, the opium smugglers, the um, uh, the the, uh, the 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 folks who would who would bring uh, alcohol across, um, and so that was kind of a well-known uh, and well-trodden path. And that was like the way station along that path. And so, and, and, you know, it was a great place. It was, uh, it was, a, it was kind of a fabulous uh, bar um, and, you know, very colorful Pancho Villa's saddle in one room. And, you know, there were the, 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 the waiters had bow ties and white linen everywhere. And that was Mike's headquarters. That's where he would go. He would go there to do business and to, to do bribes. He was also, you know, he was also, uh, um, you know, he was he would go to Boys Town, which is the which is the brothel. I mean, you know, and 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 actually, this these were sort of rites of passage. Their idea was that they were doing a young boy a favor by bringing him across in Mexico. If you can belly up to the bar and put you know your money on the bar, you can buy alcohol. And so there was this whole kind of it's there's a lot of kind of toxic macho behavior. Uh, um, as part of the story that underlies the story. And actually there's a lot of t- toxic uh, enabling that goes on from the women in, uh, in their lives, because, you know, for, for, if you have someone who's uh, working as a smuggler in your household, um, you know, some months were extraordinarily fat 
because you know you 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 had a successful let's say you smuggled some a ton of marijuana across and you've got $40,000 in a duffel bag in a room and you know and some extra weed and and and, and everything's good but other times it was that the you know the the common law wife who had a job as a telemarketer had to you know earn the earn the rent that month and so as it happens mike uh, rented his house from an uncle named Tio Chewy who lived across the the border in Nuevo Laredo. He he was a he was kind of a businessman, uh, uh, and so you know. But that that was the model. The model was that he would be he would either have a ton of money that he was trying to invest, or he was totally broke. Yeah, I don't know if you saw. I was just sharing images. I don't know if if it. Yeah, I did. I saw that was cool. Yeah. Uh, the Cadillac bar for folks that are watching. Is this, does this what it looked like on the outside? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's it. Is this a good picture yeah. of the inside? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's cool. Thank you for yeah, confirming the, the, that. The one right there in the middle looks to be like the early days. See that where it says, yeah, that one and the one next to it. That's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um. Did you, were you subject to that macho behavior? Did they make you go to the the whorehouse? And well, I, I'll tell you, I caught a break. I remember I have a specific memory of they wanted to, and I it was my that's what uncle. you meant, though, right? They would make the young boys as sort of oh, a yeah. rite of passage, like, hey, yeah, you have sex 100%. with this, yeah, yeah, it's time to pop your cherry. You're 13, yeah, and so yeah, so I remember uh, having a very close call where they were going to bring me to Boys Town. This is my uncle and Mike, and we were sitting around a table and they were saying, you know, they were telling jokes. Like the first time I went to Boys Town, I, I had to limp across the bridge, blah, 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 like really bad, crude, redneck stuff, like terrible. And um, and we were going to go. He was going to, I think it was Moose was there and and uh, his common-law wife came in. They were shopping in the Mercado nearby and she put her foot down. She said, absolutely not. There's no way you're taking him to to Boys Town. I, I I won't allow it. And and she she kind of saved me. And I you know and I I am grateful to this day to her for for that that she just wouldn't allow it. She just wouldn't let it happen. But it it was a it was a, a close call. <laughs> yeah, it was a close call. Yeah, I just googled yeah. Boys Town, and it looks like on Wikipedia yeah. it's talking about how it's an array of like brothels and saloons yeah. and. This looks like the yeah. best picture that I can find online of what may have been Boys Town. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the story of um, those encampments. So when Pershing's army um, went basically during the Mexican Revolution, um, Pers- Pershing's army was chasing Pancho Villa all over northern Mexico. You know, the U.S. and Mexico were, were um, um, having these skirmishes along the border. And uh, they the men needed entertainment along the border and so so the, the, basically the brothels would follow as encampments and follow the soldiers uh, and so that's the origin of the, the the kind of the boys town encampments they're not only in laredo they're they're i think in other in other border towns yeah I'm not I'm... not so much anymore I, I i you know i think uh nuevo laredo is so i i mean i don't know if you know but nuevo laredo is that is ground zero of this of the zetas and the zetas are one of the most lethal cartels um and this, all of this came after mike i mean the zetas existed but they they the kind of 
government going to war with the cartels and the border becoming hyper-violent. That happened from about 2006 on. My, my old man died in 2003, January 8th, 2003. So he kind of dodged a bullet in that way because he, he probably would not have survived the, the, the era of excessive violence along the border. Uh, he was, you know, he was kind of of a dying generation. That's why the, the, the premise of my series is called The Last Smuggler, because he may have been the last of the kind of gringo gentleman smugglers. You know, there was like there were like these families in Laredo, right, that that you bribed them and they operated that you paid the peso. They, but they were small time. Right. And they were. Um, and then, yeah, the, there's a whole history that happens in the 2000s with democracy when democracy came to Mexico. And, you know, things just became a cauldron of violence. Um, and, uh, and you know, and, and fortunately for me, because I don't really want to name, I don't want to get into that history because the, the, those are like, that's a different level of scary. I'd rather not mention those those folks. But the, but the group is called the Zetas and they, they transform Nuevo Laredo so that people don't really even go across anymore. They're so afraid. You know the Cadillac shuttered. The Boys Town is there's no business. No, that, that, that doesn't really doesn't really exist anymore either. And and you know, doctors and dentists who have their practices, if they could go to Laredo and open up there, they went across the river and, and did so. It was it became very violent. Yeah, no that that uh str- that was particularly interesting to me because yeah, just based on my short Google exactly what you just said is what i found the the origin of uh boys town concept along the border can be traced in part to the relationship that developed between the united states army and various ad hoc entrepreneurs in northern mexico so the point though that i made is or that that the reason it really resonated with me is i recently did a series with legal sex workers from nevada and that is a holdover from oh, world right. war ii that's when that business oh, wow. started so it was a similar yeah thing where yeah. the men needed entertainment quote unquote um, yeah and uh, it had to be in certain areas so yeah um That's anyways i didn't know that yeah wow. yeah so but to get back to um what we were just talking about you know uh i like that you how we transitioned here from transactions to the open and it kind of clarifying that why the project is called the last smuggler because this was before the let's say cartel days, if you will, or like you say, heightened violence. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't exactly like not violent, but it wasn't. It was basically. I don't remember anyone. I don't remember guns being part of this whole package. You know what I mean? Like I I, I remember there being muscle. Any t- like when we went to Dallas, we had a we had a bodyguard, so the gang had a bodyguard, and then when we went to Dallas, they had a bodyguard. I remember there there's there was always be these very big dudes around and you kind of knew they were the muscle. I just don't remember them. I don't remember seeing a gun ever. Maybe yeah. there were. I, I I do know that there's a you know it's a gun crazy culture, but it wasn't part of the oper- modus operandi to my understanding. It was more like they these were guys who were kind of like you know they could they could beat you up, but they weren't going to they they weren't killers per se like you know sicarios that that's all much later that comes later gotcha and one of the things that stuck with me i'd like to um if you're able to and we could talk off air about this but the james bradford your resident expert uh, yeah sounds like a awesome resource and i believe yeah i took this note off of something that they said and i think it relates you 
to talking about how your biological father was the last smuggler. It's this idea that a lot of times uh, people will make somebody out to be a kingpin as if it was a vertical integration when really it's much more nuanced than that. And it's not like it's uh, and I just want to take a brief moment to to really explain what I'm saying. So for folks that don't know what the term vertical integration means in some states, just to use cannabis as an example, because it seems like this can resonate with people. In some states, vertical integration is a requirement to participate in the cannabis industry. Florida is an example. So what okay. that means, folks, is that you have to grow it, you have to transport it, you have, well, sorry, you have to grow it, package it, transport it, and sell it. So from seed mm -hmm. to sale, vertical integration mm -hmm. You are mm. basically, you know, you're you're growing it yourself, you're selling it yourself, and and you're making all the money. That is what vertical integration is. And I, I thought it was interesting. I believe it was James Bradford that made the point that um, it's like the goal of prosecutors to make somebody like, you know, uh, your biological father out to be a, a kingpin, but really it's like a coordinated effort between many different parties. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was it. I yeah, I, I, Bradford's so brilliant. I mean, I, I I totally agree with you. And thank you for that clarification. I didn't actually understand vertically integrated as it relates to cannabis um, in that way. That's interesting. Um, but um, yeah, he he actually, if if you recall from that snippet, he 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 said that he quoted Sam Quinones talking yes. about the Internet of Dope. You know, and it was it was very kind of like flat. Actually, it sounds like you know and. You know, uh, which is different again from from today. I'm imagining, you know, where where the both in Mexico and in the United, it, probably on both sides, right? Um, but at that at that time, it, uh, um, I think that you could operate on the margins, and you know, as long as you bribe the right people, right? And again, we're talking not small amounts of money, and and uh, but. It was still it was risky in this way that if let's say you you coal are bringing a you know a, tr a truckload of weed and it's 1990 right and um, let's say that that um, you know that it gets in an accident that it go, it falls into the Rio Grande these things happen you know that let's say that that it uh, that you get um, hijacked you know basically you're on the highway and people you know these kinds of things were not unheard of or a rival you know gang member heard about it and kind of found it and so then you're on the hook for the money um and you know the if the product gets skimmed or that's another way that these deals go south there's all it seems to me like there's a million ways it can go right. south and and that's the problem is is and that and and I will get into that as I develop the series I happen to know that our deal that I was involved with went south, and um, I don't know why. I, I speculate as to why in the memoir. I'm not. I'm not actually sure. I was by that point at the what we I called it the safe house, but it was with Mike's boss, and um, and I know my grandmother was called in to uh, to she had to basically provide the ransom for my, they had taken my uncle and probably would have taken me. Um, and I, and, you know, and, and I was put on a plane back to Scranton, not Boston, because um, I went that summer to stay briefly at the end of the summer with, with an aunt who lived in Pennsylvania. But, um, 
but yeah, so our deal that we were on, it was one of those deals that, that went south and it was, it was, you know, horrible and, um, and all of that. Yeah. And I want to, we'll get back to just open conversation, but, you know, I'm trying to do my part here and discussing this project with you on air, but I also want to take, oh, <laughs> that happens oh, no, sometimes. Sorry. sorry about that. No, it's okay. Uh, that happens to me sometimes too. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, you know, I'm trying to spread the word of your story on here and I will continue to, you know, do what I can to share it. I'm curious though, for folks that want to help get your story out, um, is there any way that they can directly assist with with that, like either by way of just directly contacting you? I know you're kind of workshopping it and making it. You've got it written down and stuff, and you're 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 trying to push it out, and you want to do it strategically the right way. I'm just asking, just you know, to try to give you any help that you might be able to to give you the platform. Uh, yeah. what, what could a listener do maybe to to help you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two avenues. One is, um, you, you know, as you as you know, because you're in the space, the podcast space is very saturated now, and so that's a good thing. It, it, it means that there's a kind of leveling off in prices, and you know, yeah. things can be done a little bit more cheaply. So, um, at, I'm very lucky to be at Berkeley College of Music. I have these incredible people, James Bradford, you mentioned, um, and also a song composer uh, named Ali. And, you know, they're, they're just very invested in the story and would love to work on it. The per episode kind of shits and giggles budget is 10 grand. And so we're trying to raise that for the spring to, to continue our work. We're also pitching it to companies that that would probably want to do it in-house. They would say, OK, you can keep, you know, your song composer. Bradford can be part of it. But but we have this, uh, you know, we want to do the the sound design piece here and, you know, and when we want to sign this, this, uh, this journalist to help you and so forth, that, that actually, I'd be very open to that because um, I think that to really explore the story, you need some journalistic chops. You know, I'm in the process of unsealing the indictment that sent my old man on the run in 1989, 90, right around that time. It's actually in, in, in the mail to me right now. Um, and so I'll, I'll look at that and I'd like to just kind of recreate follow the money, if you will, you know, of his career. Right. Um, and and, and uh, that takes resources. So I, I am talking to some folks. Um, I, you know, I don't want to kind of mention it because it's it's a, it's a little delicate it's in in process. And I and I. Um, but then there's a whole third avenue, and this is where maybe you you could uh, put the word out, which is you know there is an industry behind what I'm doing. So I'm telling the story of the last smuggler. And this is a legacy story for the legal cannabis industry. So in the same way that I would think like Anheuser-Busch would want to know the story of their, you know, the bootleggers and the, the roots of their business, um, I would think that there are these companies out there that 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 might want to sponsor this project. And, you know, the whole series, I could do it with my team um, as currently constituted, probably for 80000 for the whole series. Um and, you know, I think what we would do is we would say, OK, um, legalization has made this, you know, a, a very common thing. Um, let's you presenting sponsor come in and kind of tell the story of your roots, the roots of your industry. And um, and, you know, and we will maybe we could do a video together of, you know, producing an episode or, or doing the, you know, in the studio, do, uh, finding the the the. the uh, 
the scores and finding the, the which songs to use and 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 maybe you could use it on your website and you know as a matter of fact there is a guy in boston he was a former city council person named tito jackson and i have an introduction to him i haven't yet met him but he's a he's like a prodigious fundraiser for his brand right like he's raising capital and it seems like that you know these uh you know it's a very competitive world the kind of cannabis legal cannabis so I, i would say to someone like him if he's listening you know i'd say listen raise money for the podcast and you become exec producer and it, it, it you know and it kind of lives uh, under your brand as much as anything we go out in the world with it as well but it enables us to continue to the work gotcha, gotcha. yeah yeah and i could i could totally see it rolling out something like that and it, in a fashion like that i mean to say um unfortunately and this is kind of what i was going to kind of open up to open discussion and you may have seen it since you mentioned uh you had saw some of my podcast with tony um uh, one of our mutual acquaintances um unfortunately it doesn't seem like many cannabis companies i don't mean to say all but many cannabis companies have that attitude of embracing that legacy story and yeah. instead they want to professionalize and they yeah. use words like that professionalize standardize yeah. and yeah. You know, make it this they don't want it to look or feel or resemble at all what the past looked like, yeah. which I think is sad. And I want to give you the space, though, to be very clear, because you told me this before we went on air. And I, I do, as I told you, I don't mean to glorify this. Yeah, it's not that it was rainbows and butterflies all the time, but there is something to be said about. I think the traditional market. I do want to give you the space, though, to talk about maybe what I just uh, alluded to, if you want to. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing for sure is the people who want to professionalize the standards. I met. I, I'm in Boston, and I, I, you know, I've been kind of getting the word out about the podcast. And I, I met a guy named Jeff Ross Rosson, R A W S O N, who runs something called the Cannabis Institute, and mm. he, he's, he's all about like he, for example. Uh, tells the story of going to his local weed shop and getting this up, um, you know, getting a joint. They just opened up. I think he paid eight dollars. And, you know, he said the quality was terrible. And he said one of the things is that there there is no like quality control. So this dude's a scientist, MIT trained, I believe, or Harvard trained. I can't remember. But, you know, I think that that there's a need for professionalization. And, you know, but at the same time that that's true, there is also uh, people who are, you know, just are very curious about what was it like before? You know, I, you know, as I, I'm on the faculty at Berkeley, you can't walk down Mass Ave in Boston without smelling weed coming out of every building. You know, it's basically everywhere. And so I think for a lot of folks, like young people, especially, they they, they do wonder, like, what was it like when it was you know, before, you know, Massachusetts legalization began in 2017. But, you know, what was it like across the country before that? And, you know, and and, and so I think there is an appetite. And, it, you know, and it may not come from the kind of corporate weed folks. The problem is that the mom and pop weed shops don't have the money. Right. You know, I think, you know, it. and so, yeah. yeah and so t- Tony's great, but, but um, it'd be great to find someone kind of in, um, in kind of in the, um, uh, who's sort of between those worlds may have uh, some deep pockets, but isn't necessarily on the corporate side. And that would be the kind of person that could come in and say, I'm going to make this happen. This is an awesome project. 
Right. And one of those details that I fixated on earlier in your story, which I know you 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 said, you know, may have been, uh, you know, kind of an embellishment or whatever, but also somewhat true is the idea of openly inspecting the product. And that is an element of the traditional market that, like I said, like you just said, I think there are good uh, things that come out of legalization and standardization and professionalization, which include testing you know, the ability yeah. to do recalls. There were no recalls in the traditional yeah. market because there was no mechanism it's, for that, right? right. It was just kind of like, yeah. hey, you got bad product. Enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but there's something to be said, I think, about the the sterilization or or the – like I say, the, the industry is slowly but surely – not starting to resemble what it was and it's becoming very like consumer packaged good which i understand yeah. that is america right you can't go to a yeah. store without seeing consumer packaged goods but at least with cannabis flower which is what i'm enjoying right now like you know a can yeah. i know that this could you know you could technically cpg it like you do with cigarettes but i just am arguing i've been trying to make the argument that that cannabis flower the you know in in its natural form should really be sold as produce just like mm. it was you know yeah. so that you can look at it smell it and just yeah. as a connoisseur maybe for like the the average consumer they're just like hey get me a, a box of weed and I'll smoke it and it'll get me high but for a yeah. connoisseur I like to like with my grapes or any other produce I buy I inspect the product might even pop yeah. a grape in my mouth see if it's a good you know good batch <laughs> Um, yeah. And I think that should exist in the cannabis market. And that's one simple way in which yeah. I feel like it feels like an erasure of uh, what I felt was a good, actually a good thing yeah. that existed I in see. the traditional market, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a funny way, I can't, I can't speak to that. I had an experience when I, when I came back from that summer, one of the things that happened to me was um, I really started to rebel. I mean, I, I, for one thing, I didn't tell my mother what had happened and I, and I was sort of bottling it up and I, I didn't know sort of, it was a secret. And so I started to kind of like rebel and go to kegger parties in the woods in my town on the South shore in Stoughton and, 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 and started to smoke joints. And one, one time I, I had a joint with my friend Keith McKenna and it was laced with PCP. And my friend turned into, um, you know, Mr. Spock with the Vulcan ears. And like, I basically began to hallucinate. And I remember thinking it was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. And I didn't know it was going to, if it was ever going to end. And it turned me off of weed for exactly 43 or 44 years. Oh, wow. And then, you know, and then when, when it became very legal, you know, or not very legal, but very decriminalized and very accessible, you know, I would I got a medical marijuana card because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And mainly for me personally, Cole, it it just made me feel very mortal when I would imbibe and I, you know, and mostly it was gummies and so on and and uh, maybe chocolate and that. And I would feel like I was dying every time I did it. I would feel mm. like, oh, this is awful. I feel like I'm dying. And then I would want to eat a house, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and so and so I thought it it. It, it really wasn't probably the ticket for, for, for me. And around the same time, actually, I started to do Tai Chi very seriously. And I think the Chi took the place of, of you know, what, what the, the, the marijuana had been doing, but, but, um, but I acknowledge it's medicine and, and it's ancient medicine. 
And, uh, you know, and, and also the, the smuggler, the, the smuggler is also an ancient role. Right. And so, you know, I have no doubt that my old man was, a was, uh, you know, a connoisseur and that he knew, you know, how to inspect the leaves and the buds and the, you know, well, in one detail I picked up on is that you were selling, or I can't remember exactly if it was the sample. I can't remember which part of the story it was, but you had Sensimalia. And yeah. from my understanding of history, there was there was weed, which was heavily seeded, and you had to pick through yeah. all the seeds and stems. And then yeah. there was Sensimalia, which yeah. people finally figured out how to separate the males from the females, yeah. and it was... yeah high-grade cannabis so yeah it sounds yeah. like your dad did know what he was pushing. yeah i think so i think and, and the stuff that he consumed they did it in private i mean they didn't do it it was considered very forbidden and you know and they did it in private but but um i did get the story from my uh you know his, my would-be stepsister his step his uh stepdaughter that one time she was in this was when things were kind of uh going off the rails for for, for that little family unit they were in austin and she once showed up at a party and she said, oh, I just had this laying around and it was like the finest grade weed that, you know, that he would have brought up. And, you know, she was like the cool kid in school because she, you know, she just had access to this amazing quality and quantity of marijuana, you know? Yeah. And I was going to ask you that, like, I feel like it's hard as a kid. I mean, you know, you got to, you can't tell details, but were you ever like. I have a pretty crazy life and try to like tell confide in kids about like with your friends about it or anything. Do you get what I'm asking? Uh, I do. I, I remember, I'll tell you a funny story. Cause I, a hundred years ago, I got a degree in screenwriting from Boston university and I wanted to do the kind of Hollywood writer thing. And I, I didn't end up going that route, but, uh, but I had a partner and we wrote together and, you know, we optioned several screenplays, maybe as many as five, and, you know, and we were having a little bit of, of success at it. And we went to the Austin Film Festival. We had a submission in there. And because I was in Texas, I remember I turned to this friend and I told him the story of that summer, the story that I'm freely telling now with the memoir and with this podcast. And based on his knowledge of me, he we had gone to Bowdoin College together and we, we then went to graduate school together. I remember him just looking at me like I had two heads, like he couldn't understand that I had this chapter in my life. And, and, and in a way I, I was never able to compartmentalize it successfully either. I, it, you know, and it was, it was kind of a kernel of shame that I carried. Um, and you know, that those, those kinds of, of things are very hard to deal with. You either own your story or your story owns you. And so part of, you know, kind of coming out with his story and trying to uh, frame it in, in, historically and understand the players and all of that is because I would like to own the story, uh, you know, it, um, because, you know, I could have I could have died on that trip. It was a very dangerous trip. It was very kind of like uh, harrowing the whole thing. And so so I'd like to own the story. What do you think about, I know that it sounds like you're supportive of cannabis, but what do you think about just drugs in general? Like, Yeah, you well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think my brother told me a funny story recently about some, have you ever heard of the Cobra effect? Uh -uh. 
So the so in India during the Raj, right when when the British were in power in India, they the 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 country was overrun with cobras, and so the crown, in its wisdom, decided that it was going to say to the average Indian householder, if you bring in a dead cobra, we will give you X amount of pounds, mm. and so. So what happened was everybody started to breed cobras in India and, you know, literally like raising cobras in their backyard and slicing the head off and bringing it into the, you know, the, wherever the Raj had its headquarters and getting the money. And eventually the, 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 the administration there, the colonial administration was like, oh, wait a second, I think we got this all wrong. And they said, forget it. No, it was all a mistake. There's not going to be any compensation for bringing in uh, de-headed cobras. And what did the people do? The Indian householders? They released all of the cobras all over India. And all of these cobras, India was overrun more than it ever was before because of the cobra effect. So my attitude about drugs and, and you know, Malcolm Gladwell has like a thing about the border. Like the, there's a lot of studies. There's a lot of research that the tighter you make the border, the more you make it attractive for people to want to go through and bring illicit goods through. This is the whole story of the war on drugs, you know. So my attitude about drugs is legalization is um, it makes it more of an open situation. Once you take the taboo off of it. You can get into regulating it and understanding it. It's basically a plant. We're trying to understand. We've always related to plants as human beings, you know, and so understanding cannabis and, and, you know, a lot of the kind of like animus against cannabis, it was frankly racist. You know, if you think about like in the jazz clubs and, you know, in New Orleans and these places, people, the white administrators in Washington, D.C. were like up in arms about, you know, black joy. That was their basic issue. It wasn't so much cannabis, you know, like Harry Anslinger and these other people. There was a lot of racial animus against the users of cannabis who were largely African-American and Mexican-American. And, you know, and, and you know, not to say that Mexico wasn't against cannabis. It was. Mexico also had like this, this whole kind of like anti-cannabis scare in the cities and it's going to turn our children into zombies and all this kind of stuff. Right. But past past cannabis do you do you agree that just the idea of prohibition is futile yeah that's the point i'm making with the cobra effect i think i think you can't get to regulation and um through this pathway of of making it taboo making it you know and so there are some drugs that are very destructive but um and I don't have the answer to how to regulate the, or how to sort of like scale those drugs into the society. There will always be forbidden fruit in our society. That's just part of, I think it's just part of human, human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, one of the things I was kind of working my way towards, have you ever heard of the iron law of prohibition? Um, no. And I thought, I thought this is where you might've been going. So I'm glad I, I can share with the audience and you what it is. It's something I've talked about a little bit on the show. I learned about it from somebody else. I actually just pulled up the Wikipedia page. So the iron law of prohibition is a term coined by Richard Cohen in 1986, which posits that as law enforcement becomes more intense, the potency of prohibited substances increases. 
Cohen put it this way, the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs. And it's the idea that, you know, something as simple as Thornton says that if drugs are legalized, then consumers will begin to wean themselves off of the higher potency forms. For instance, with cocaine users buying coca leaves and heroin users switching to opium. The thing is, like with, as you said, making the border tighter and uh, really clamping down on the smuggling of these naturally occurring substances like the cannabis, coca and opium and even mushrooms, uh, because it's getting you have to package it smaller and package it within things you synthesize a stronger version of that drug allowing you to compact you get you follow me 100 percent. i couldn't agree more and think about that as it relates to people i mean think about trump in 2016 coming down the escalator at the trump tower saying murder they're murderers They're, they're rapists they're you know it's basically the it's that's that is the the uh the same kind of thing it's it's sort of like the other or turning or you know trying to kind of create and whip up a frenzy of what's coming across the borders you know and um and you're you're it's the iron law of prohibition yes it's true and and it's true that in countries that have open borders they have fewer problems I mean, not to say that that you can have a country with no border policy at all, and you know, you know, Europe has, a, a, you know, a, mig- a migrant crisis just as America does. These the, the rich part of the world, the kind of south to north migration is happening everywhere, but you know, but there has to be a more sensible way where you're not labeling whole categories of people or you know plants that we've lived with for hundreds of uh, for millennia as bad and evil and taboo and this is this is basically you know kind of like the shadow side of human nature that we're talking about right and like you say it's just yeah if you're giving it worth by trying to prohibit them and it encourages things to become more dangerous like it really reminded me of your example of with the cobras like you have this intention on your face and you it all blows up it like it gets worse as a result exactly yeah did you see the elvis movie where elvis went in i forget the name of it but he went in it's based on a true event he went in to talk to richard nixon and he wanted to get like a federal badge uh from the um i don't know from the dea or what but but basically it's the irony of, you know, Elvis uh, associated with marijuana and um, hash, cocaine, certain drugs with the youth movement and the hippies. And he tried to make common cause with Nixon saying, you know, uh, let's go to war on these folks and let's do this and let's do that. And, he, and you know, there's this uh, uh, picture photo op of them posing together and and, and, and whatnot. But the reality is that Elvis died of a legal overdose of, you know, pills that his doctor uh, was prescribing. And, you know, Elvis was like an idol of mine when I was when I was a kid. And and it's sort of like, you know, he it's it's just that's such a good example of the hypocrisy of this this nation and our drug policy, because, you know, Nixon was all over it. He he thought it was a great idea to, to make common cause with Elvis and this fine young man and, you know, 
But but, you know, we know how Elvis ended and we know even at this time, I think that during that trip, he was thrown out of his house by Priscilla um, down in 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 uh, in Memphis and because of drug use, because he was just out of control. And then he makes that trip to the White House and he, you know. Right. But it's funny, even back then, there was the, the distinction how those drugs are OK, right? Those aren't those aren't drugs. Those are yeah. from the doctor. That's right. Well, that's right. And if you've if you've watched Mad Men and you know all those women who are like, God help us, those some of the things that people were on in the 1950s, and you know, it's like mm-hmm. it was the doctor. It was like Doctor Feelgood, right? And uh, and certain drugs were okay, and certain other drugs weren't, and you know, and and uh, but I think we'd all be better off if we tried to. Uh, judge less and understand more and change that part of ourselves that feels the need to lash out and to to kind of to kind of uh, you know assess someone else's what they want and what they need to you know life is hard what people need to get through life and to to kind of cope is up to them. Yeah, my brother just started using cannabis, so it was kind of funny. He, I just kind of like to sit back sometimes. He was debating my dad, who's not like support it like it's not like he's like he's just whatever he's like it's legal whatever you know before it was illegal he had opinions about it but now he's just like whatever um anyways uh they were debating whether alcohol was a drug and again i have opinions on this obviously it's a drug i'm sure you would agree with that um but i was just playing around with him because i know my brother gets mad and kind of gets heated during uh arguments my dad was like he's like no alcohol is not a drug and i was like yeah cal and he does have a point they do say drugs and alcohol yeah, right, that's right. and he was like he was like yeah kingpin checkmate and I, it was funny as i did not even agree with him but i just you know so yeah but it's funny that like he he actually believed that and i didn't i just didn't feel like taking him to task that night my brother was doing it himself to yeah. try to like explain that that they're obviously yeah. drugs you know um, but yeah. I truly believe that that's still a belief today that, you know, there's there's these drugs and then there's these like coffee, for example. I Correct. mean, coffee is insane. I just started drinking coffee within the last few years and it's insane that yeah. like the first 100%. time I ever drank it in a meeting, I was like, I I had to almost like leave the meeting. I was like, wow, people like I thought somebody slipped something in my coffee or something. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is how people feel. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, absolutely. I mean, that's 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 it. Yeah. So I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but um, were there any bases, just particularly with your story, uh, that that we didn't discuss today that that you wanted to discuss? You know, we talked about how um, you looked back on it, and you know, I, I, again, I know that there's going to be much more when this series comes to, to reality, many more details that I'm sure will come out, but I just wanted to give you the space if there was anything specifically we didn't discuss today that. Yeah. Um, no, I think we hit on like some really crucial kind of, um, uh, elements in the, in the whole kind of story. Um, the other thing I should say, I always want to say this about my my old man, because, you know, to call someone a smuggler, you know, it's, it's like calling someone a prostitute, right? It's not uh, prostitutes are the world. That's like the world's oldest profession. And like being a smuggler could be thought to be an ancient and honorable profession. But 
the other thing I just want to say about my old man, because I know I'm going to come into contact in interviewing his, you know, his close in circles, that is, you know, his sister, his brother, his cousins. Um, he, um, he, he was beloved, right? So, you know, how we chose to make his, his living and, you know, it wasn't something that I was attracted to, but, but I also acknowledge that he had a lot of potential. He had artistic potential. Um, he was funny. He was charismatic. Uh, but it was a very tough scene that he was drawn into. And, you know, um, this was really in the days before people really did therapy, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and the border was tough and, and, uh, and, you know, that bandit culture is very seductive and he, you know, and so he, he kind of lost his way, but I, I, I sometimes just feel the need to affirm that he didn't start that way, that he was, he started out with great potential and, and, you know, and was a good brother and a good, uh, you know, son to his mom and he, and he was beloved. And the other thing too, there's a whole kind of dark comedy element, like a lot of, he was very funny in his, in his own way and very lovable, but, you know, we mythologize the good and we mythologize the bad. And, um, you know, a true reckoning would include, uh, some of the, some of the really worst, worst kind of behaviors that, and that that's why it's been challenging for me to to kind of tap the story as as the creator of it. But I I believe that you know by telling his story, I get a, some you know some bigger themes: the border, you know, the drug trade, and that it's a it, it's a legacy project. It's like it's like something that to be able to really unearth the story and all of its details would be pretty amazing. Because you know it's like you ask one person about him and you get one answer but if you bring five different voices in you get this complete picture of the man and so that's really my intention is to honor my father in, in telling the story as well you know yeah yeah very well said very well said and like i say i'm really hoping that this comes to light because what what i've heard and just this discussion today has been amazing. And I hope it's not our last discussion, especially if you have any updates, you know, in the future, please reach out. But I'd love to, I'd, I might even, you might even hear back from me because I'd love to have you. Oh, that'd be on, great. You know? Yeah, I would love it. Um, I guess I wanted the last topic of discussion that I wanted to end on uh, is something that I've already kind of touched on in some spirits, but I'm just curious what you think is somebody who does believe, you know, we've pretty well established that we believe that prohibition is a failed policy, um, you know, and even causes more problems sometimes than it solves. It's interesting that like even in states like California and my my home state, Illinois, and other states that are starting to legalize cannabis, I actually say legalize in um, quotes because I've been having attorneys on my show and we've been discussing, let's just call it the shortcomings of legalization again in quotes, mm. because when you think legalization, you think like uh, beer where you can go and buy as much as you want and have as much mm. as you want. Of course, there are strictures, right? Uh, mm. No drinking and driving, um, no drinking in public. You know, you can't be mm. like just trashed in public, yeah. although that does happen because of bar culture. Anyways, though, that's a nuance. Um I'm just saying, generally speaking, that's the acceptable behavior, right? And you would yeah. assume that would follow with cannabis, but it seems that in every state, 
there's this idea of possession limits and they're coined, they're described as public health safety measures. Um, like, well, we don't want to give out too much, but, and on its face, I mean, look, I'm not going to say that I understand that. I, I can see how maybe for half a second or some people can't understand that, but what I'm really getting at, and I'm curious what your take on is, is the idea that prohibition and, and the policies that existed before legalization actually do continue um, by way of of ideas of possession limits, for example, or or in states like my own where you can't grow your own cannabis. It's legal, but you can't grow it. And if you grow yeah. it, you still go to jail. So there's like so many different ways in which you can still get in trouble. And I'm curious, that's not alone with my state that exists in California, although to some lesser degree, I know that you guys yeah. have more liberal laws, but I'm just curious. I know that yeah. change can be incremental, but what's your take on this? Um, well, you know, I can share a personal anecdote. I was um, a friend of a friend. I, I went to a backyard barbecue this summer in, in Stoughton, the town where I grew up. And the, the dad at this house, he had um, three massive marijuana plants in the backyard. And I, I was thinking about like how um, on the one hand, the kids are exposed to this, but on the other hand, it's um, it it's a way to control the you know the 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 quality of it and to to have a kind of pride in it and in the process and and so my hope is that um that that will kind of catch on as the model that people can just grow as much as they want on a kind of personal basis and then you know and 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 have pride in what they've done like show right. like it's like it's like plant people you know there are people who just have incredible pride in their plants mm -hmm. and then you know that can be like a like no pun intended a grassroots movement and you know and then, then they move yeah. out from there and and uh and you know because it's very hard you know i think it's a margaret mead quote there's there's basically nothing that a small group of determined citizens can't accomplish when they put their minds to it, you know? And so, you know, there's a lot of ways, a lot of the people who are on the other side of some of these issues are very well organized. There's a Martin Luther King quote I heard, I heard recently also, where he said, you know, the people who are, who are for peace should be as well organized as, as the people who are for war. And that's the beginning, right? Is that you have to get organized. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's like the, the people it's and and actually a similar quote by um by Mother Teresa. She said, "If you have an anti-war rally, don't invite me. But the moment you have a peace rally, I will I'll be the first to attend." And so the idea is for all of these things, right? Because people believe very strongly in cannabis as medicine. The idea is to hold a positive vision and to be able to you know take the the necessary risks just like my old man you know his risk quotient was huge because he wanted of course his motivation was a little bit different but but there was an inkling at the beginning where he was like i you know i'm going to do this because this is cool and this is this is you know i'm i'm you know and the us government's a little hypocritical on this issue and you know and so i think we can still have that uh, spirit of you know i'm going to within bounds take some risks and uh and you know and i'm gonna have the best supply personally in my backyard or you know i'll, I'll have my friends and i are gonna smoke the best pot 
and and then it, and then it slowly just kind of catches on. It's just catching. There is a Berkeley student. Um, I heard a podcast recently of a Berkeley student. She was uh, known in the music scene here in Boston. She was um, known as like the the brownie girl. She would perform at these, and then she'd show up at these shows, and she would sell these brownies. And then after after um, after she graduated from Berkeley, she opened a company, and it's doing pretty well. It's it's like an artisan company that you know that sells sells uh, edibles. Interesting. So I think that's the route to go. The route to go is just you know within our sphere of influence, you know, to just to keep uh, putting the word out and doing the good work and and uh, um, and you know people people catch on. Right, and to your point, and it's a, a point I've tried to make uh, to some of these big companies that have even been on this show. Uh, where it's like, I, I hope they exercise their their influence to encourage a future like that because it actually increases their talent pool. Yes, they, you, as you just said, a student took yes. their entrepreneurship to the next level. Yes, and it's like this could be your asset. This could be your talent pool. You know. Yeah, that's but if, right. But by not supporting these measures that we're discussing, you could argue you're not you're you're potentially decreasing the size of your talent pool. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I hope I make a good mark for some of your, you know, some of the big companies out there that they're like, okay, this guy could tell this story, tell it in a meaningful way, tell it in a way that could, could garner an audience. And maybe we could take credit and raise up this story, bring the story out and tell the story. And, you know, and it becomes part of this narrative, you know, it's sort of like the history of a plant. Yeah. Yeah, I love that idea. And I've been telling that's what I tell the companies uh, is that as soon as they embrace a story like the one you've been telling and the, the heritage you talked about, that's the moment that I become their number one supporter. And I'm like, check out this brand. This is this is yeah. great. I stink because they yeah. support the ideas that, that the culture was founded on. Yeah, for yeah exactly. Because I, I think there's right. I think. You, you know, with with marijuana, with cannabis, you know, you you always want to connect it to sort of the the yeah. There's like the, there's like a whole prehistory, and you want to connect it to the music and the counterculture and the that's part of this beautiful tapestry. And you know, as now as the accountants and lawyers start to come in because they think they can make money, we don't want to let them stamp on that story. The story is the story, and the story. You know, and so going forward, the way you honor that tradition is by kind of weaving it into your 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 practices. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just pulling up a, a picture. Um, one of the jokes I make sometimes, and I think it's just good to have a picture to, to really just round out our point on this. Do you think it like these old protests <laughs> where the hippies are together, they're like, let's legalize marijuana, but... Let's yeah. make it so that there's a possession limit because, you know, <laughs> and if anybody exceeds that, they do, they should still get in trouble. And if you grow it, you know, that might be an <laughs> issue, too. You should only be able to get it at a store. I don't even think they were talking about stores here. Like, maybe they were. Yeah, yeah right. No, I don't think so. I think you're right. But I, I don't think <laughs> I think they were just like, hey, I can get pot just fine. I just don't want to worry about going to jail on my way back yeah. from class or whatever. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, you, you mentioned Bradford. There is a funny story that he tells about a group in California called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And their idea was that 
um, if we could get the whole world, my mother actually shares this philosophy, like for global warming and other issues that are pressing in on us, that are the existential issues, if the whole world went on a simultaneous acid trip, right. our leader, we could probably get to a much better place a lot quicker. It's like my brother is friends with Bill Bill Burr out in California, the, the famous comedian. Hell yeah. And Bill Burr, you know, apparently he went on an acid trip one night and he came off the acid trip and he, he quit drinking cold turkey. Mushrooms. I listen to his podcast oh, every oh, week. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. It was mushrooms. Say, same, same difference. Some kind of a, you yeah. know, like a psychedelic that would take us to a place where we could sort of see the future of the species and the future of the planet if we continue our on our course, pre- present course. And I mean, the, the tragedy for this group, and this speaks to the people who are in it for the money, is that, you know, because it's America, Cole, what they did was they formed a church. And um, and then they started, they said, we're going to fund this enterprise by selling weed. Well, here's the problem. They were in California. They became very successful at selling weed, sort of like my old man. My old man owed millions to the to the IRS when he died. And, you know, these were people who suddenly got a taste for money. And they, you know, they, and so some of them stayed true to their roots within this group, but many of them kind of peeled off and they became like old school, like they got into Coke and other things. And, and, uh, but there was this kind of beautiful generation that, that just continued on that path. And all they wanted to do was fund this worldwide acid trip that would bring the world to a better place. Yeah. Man, we need something like that. We're, we're as a species, we're in a, we're in so much trouble. Like it could not hurt us as a species, right? Well, I think that that idea coupled with uh, another one of Bill Burr's ideas, which is like we need somebody uh, that has to live with their decisions, <laughs> is what he says. <laughs> like, I, look, I, whatever. I'm not trying to be ageist because I hate it when people are ageist against me. I get the opposite end <laughs> of that spectrum, right? People are like, "You're too young," yeah. or whatever. Um, but, uh, so I'm not trying to be ageist, but I do like his point there where it's like, you got to live with your decisions, you know, like you're like Obama, for example, like hopefully he gets to live, you know, like a a very long life, but but as a result of being elected so young, he has to live with his decisions. right? That's That's exactly right. Um, but anyways, I like the, the spirit of that joke, but back to your real point. Um, I've heard people talk about like it should almost be a requirement for every leader that is in that has the capabilities of a military under their belt that you have to undergo like regular psychedelic trips to like exactly. keep your a- ego in check and to yeah. you type. I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's so hard to describe it unless you've been through the experience. And it sounds like yes. you have because you you yeah we're going back and forth on this. So yeah 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 that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And, 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 uh, um, you know, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's it. I think we, that's where we're at. Right. Well, that's a great note to end on everybody. Uh, you know, safely and responsibly, uh, take, you know, take time to yourself. I was about to say, take psychedelic drugs, but take (laughs) Take time to yourself. And if that includes psychedelic drugs, then again, do it (laughs) responsibly and whatever, but just take care of yourselves folks. And, uh, yeah. Joseph, I had such a good time speaking with you today. Thank you for your time. Um, please keep in You're touch. Welcome. Likewise. So, um, folks, I, folks, I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. Uh, and Joseph, I look forward to the next time that we connect. Yeah, we will. We'll do it soon, Cole.
Absolutely. All right. Good chat.